We've all heard the description, haven't we, about some tough guy, some big guy, some strong guy that on the outside, he has this tough, rough exterior. But once you get to know him, once you kind of crack the surface, you see that underneath all that is thus just this tender-hearted teddy bear of a guy. You've heard that description before. You know people like that. We've all heard it. We know people who look intimidating, but once you really get to know them, you find out, wow, they're just this kind, warm, tender-hearted person. You know, in some ways, the Minor Prophets are a lot like that. They're this book, these collection of books that on the outset, they look intimidating. They look tough. They look rough to try to wade through, and for good reason. They're, they're not written in any kind of chronological order, and you're reading about it, and it's not some narrative that's real easy to follow. No, they, they tell their stories through poetry, and they use these images that don't always connect, and they tie things together in ways ways that we don't always see. And then they talk about ancient peoples and far off lands. And we don't really know a whole lot about all that anyway. And then we're asking the question, well, what does all of this have to do with me anyway? I mean, okay, Edom's going to fall, Nineveh's going to fall. Well, what does that have to do with me today? And so, yeah, we might get motivated. And okay, let me look at the minor prophets. And then we take a glance. We're like, ah, I don't know what this means. And I don't even know if it matters. You know, when we think about books with rough, tough exteriors, Nahum might be chief among them all. But the thing about the Minor Prophets is this, and Nahum in particular, that once you kind of wade through all that, once you kind of are able to grapple with the information a little bit, well, the message becomes really quite simple. And usually in the Minor Prophets, it's, hey, there's a pronouncement of sin. Here's the judgment that's coming. Here's a call to repentance. And then there's hope. Well, with Nahum, it's even simpler than that because the message is simply this. Nineveh, you're as good as dead. I mean, that's it. That's the message of the book of Nahum. In fact, in the ESV, as you kind of go through, if you look at their headings, uh, their chapter headings, the chapter one heading is the wrath of God against Nineveh. Chapters two heading, the destruction of Nineveh. In chapters three, it's heading, woe to Nineveh. You kind of get the picture that it's going to be a really bad day if you're a Ninevite. And yet at the same time, as you read through it, there's something that almost draws you in and captures and arrests your attention because Nahum writes with this poetic elegance that is incredible. It's almost unmatched in all of antiquity. It's this, this beautiful style. And at the same time, it's coupled with this brutal reality. And so this Nehu, he's able to use this finely tuned poetry to get across some really terrible destruction. We talked about that a little bit last week, and this week we get to finish up with the book of Nahum. I'm going to read chapter 3 to you, and we'll look at chapter 2 as well. But as we read chapter 3, and you just listen to these images and listen to this picture that Nahum is painting and this view that we get of God, it is striking and oftentimes a picture of God that we don't like to look at, but I want you to hear it. Nahum chapter 3, the prophet writes, 
Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies, and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for you? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart of sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put in the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lost, were cast. And her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All fortresses are like fig trees with first-rape figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts setting on the fences in the day of cold. When the sun rises, then they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep. O king of Assyria, your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grieved. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? And that's how the book of Nahum ends. It's almost this brutal taunting of Nineveh and what's going to happen to her and how awful it's going to be and what God is going to do to her. It's his wrath on full display, wiping her out completely and utterly destroyed forever. And we read that and we wrestle with it. And this is a picture of God that we don't often see. And, and we're trying to make sense. Okay, what does all this mean? And what in the world does it have to do with us today? And so as we wrap up this book, uh, I want to take some time and just go through several lessons that we see from the book of Nahum and, and, and what it means and how it should affect our view of God, our view of ourselves, our view of life. And so let's just kind of walk through this just a little bit. Okay, the first lesson that I want you to see is this. The Lord is a warrior. I mean, the book of Nahum, we get this picture that God is a jealous God. He's an avenging God. He's, he's a God who's going to make things right. He's going to protect his own. He sees what's happening, and, and he's going he's to bring about justice. See, if your God has no wrath, if your God has no outrage over evil, if your God has no answer to injustice and immorality, then you don't understand the God of the Scriptures. 
Because the God we serve is a God who does not just stand idly by as injustice happens and say, oh, well, you know, that's just how it's going to be. And, you know, I'm just, I can't really do anything about it. No, we don't serve a powerless God. We don't serve a blind God. No, our God is a warrior. And as you read through the book of Nahum, you get this testosterone just kind of pumping through the roof in this book. Uh, you know, this is a God who arrests our attention. He's, he's a God worth waiting for. He, he's a God who protects. He's a God worth believing in because when he judges and when he avenges his people, he does it rightly and he does it completely and he does it fully. Yet at the same time, you can go through and you can see in the scriptures that, yes, our God is a God of relationship, and we're thankful for that. We get a picture of God as a loving, kind, gentle father, a, a, a good shepherd who picks up his sheep and draws them close. But understand this, at the same time, our God is a warrior. He, he's calling his church to battle, not, not with swords and bows and arrows, but with prayer and with his word. He's calling us to impact our world, to impact our culture for his cause. And he's a warrior who fights and avenges and defends and protects and he's in control. If your God's not that big, then you don't understand the God of the scriptures. And that's one thing that the book of Nahum reminds us of is just who God is. That in his goodness and in his greatness, he does avenge his people. That he does not allow immorality and justice to go on forever. That there will be an answer to all of that. We see that in Nahum. You see it in the book of Revelation. And you're wondering how long, how long? And then God comes with a sword coming out of his mouth. But our God... God is a warrior. At the same time, lesson two, we need to remember that God does not forget his people. The Nahum talks about, especially in chapter two, of God restoring the majesty of Jacob, the majesty of Judah. Nahum, as we talked about last week, it means comfort. It means compassion. In this book, it's meant to be a book of comfort and compassion for God's people. You know, sometimes we recoil at a God of wrath and, and we shy away from him, a God who has this fierce anger like this. Why? Because deep down it kind of reveals that we believe that we can avenge ourselves. We don't need a God of wrath. We, we don't need all that. We, we, we can take care of that part. We, we just need the God of grace. But to understand that God's grace and his wrath work together completely, and it's all a part of who he is. It's all loving. We understand that God, in his goodness, in his justice, does not forget his people. And in not forgetting his people, it means that he stands up for those and he protects us and that he's forming one kingdom that's fully rid of sin because he's going to justify everything. He's redeeming everything. See, we recoil at this thought of God, this God of wrath, because we think we can take care of it ourselves. Judah, though, Judah knew she couldn't take care of herself. She knew that she was the tiny kid on the block, that she was oppressed. There was no way she could come against mighty Assyria. Assyria was too strong, too powerful, too mighty. There was no way. She doesn't recoil at this thought. No, the ancient Israelites, they embraced this God because they recognized their utter, their complete, total need for him, those who were righteous, those who were faithful. They got that. Problem is, sometimes we don't get that because in America, in some ways, we're a part of the nation that's the big kid on the block. Thankfully, our nation's not like Assyria in a lot of ways, 
But at the same time, we, we can develop this confidence that, well, we can take care of ourselves. We can protect ourselves. We can avenge ourselves. And God's saying, no, when I decide to come against you, I can come against you. And that kind of leads into this next point. Yes, God does not forget his people. And at the same time, success does not hide our sin from God. Success does not hide our sin from God. Nineveh was very successful. I mean, in worldly terms, I mean, you look at it, Nineveh was very successful. It was built way back, almost at the beginning of time. If you remember Nimrod from Genesis, he's the one who builds this city. It was an old, old city. But it wasn't until the 9th century BC that Nineveh really began to become this powerhouse, a military might. And for 200 years, Assyria, they, they seemingly never lost a battle. They were growing. They were invincible. There was nothing you could do to stop them. And the only time they were ever lost any battle at all was when Hezekiah prayed. You can check that out. But otherwise, I mean, this, they're just growing, getting more and more powerful. Yet for all of Nineveh's success and all of Nineveh's power, its sins were never hidden from God. God says, we, we just read about it. God says, I see that you're a city full of lies. I see the way you plunder people. I know that you're a bloody city. I know there's no end to your prey. Uh, the, you, the carnage, the death, it's everywhere. It's bodies upon bodies. He's stumbling over dead bodies. I mean, this is the picture that you're getting. And as you go through, and if you were to read about the, the history of Assyria, and we've talked about it some, but I mean, it is just a brutal people. They smashed people alive. Kings talking about this and then feeding dead people to dogs. And the British Museum that I mentioned last week, you go over to London, you can check it out. And in that museum, there's reliefs. There's these pictures that were done back in that day of the Ninevites impaling their enemies and the heads that they had just lopped off and just piled up. I mean, it is an ugly, just full of ugly, grisly images. And so it's no wonder that God says, I am against you. He says that several times. You'll see it in chapter two. You'll see it in chapter three. And God says, I am against you. Maybe you say, I don't know that I really want a God of wrath. No, what you don't want is a God who cannot stand up to an empire like Assyria. What you really don't want is a God who will not come against an empire like Assyria and say, my hands are tied. I can't really do anything. I don't really care. I'm not really able. No, we need a God whose wrath is perfect, whose wrath is justifiable, who in his goodness and his patience, as he's slow to anger and slow to act, but when he does, it is full, it is final. We want a God who can protect his people who can come against any power that the world has to offer and be successful. What you don't want is a God who says, I don't care. I'm not able to do anything. You understand this. Our God is not indifferent to sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye to evil. He doesn't, he, he's a God who doesn't just say, hey, I don't care about injustice. I don't care about immorality. Our God cares about all that. And apart from Christ, Romans tells us, that we're his enemies. That's the scary thing. Apart from Christ, we're his enemies. And do you see here in Nahum how God speaks to his enemies? 
See, when he's for you, you're more than conquerors. He makes his face shine upon you. But when you are against him, when you're like Nineveh, this is how he comes against you. Why? To protect his people. To ultimately rid sin from the earth. To redeem things so that things can be the way they were always meant. And listen, this is the kind of God we want. Maybe, maybe we don't feel it, maybe we don't always recognize it, but ultimately when you dig down deep, this is the God we want, this is the God we need. Brings us to the next lesson, lesson number four. No one is invincible. No one is so big, so strong, so mighty that God cannot come against her. No, no one is so powerful that God is unable to make things right. In chapter two, it says, the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal. On the day he musters them, the cypress spears are brandished. The chariot race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The, the siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She's carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Understand, Nineveh was a great city. Oh, she had mighty warriors. They're all dressed in red. Now, our armies today, and so they don't really wear red so much, do they? No, they wear camouflage to try to hide and so that you can't see them so much. But when you had to get close, when you were doing battle, so you remember the, the British, right? The red coats are coming and they wore red. And why did they wear red? Well, because in those days you had to get close to fight. I mean, you had to be able to see the person to really fight. You could, there wasn't all this long distance stuff. And red is this color of intimidation, this color of power, of strength. And so here's the Syria. Oh, they're coming with all their red armies and they look powerful and they look intimidating and their chariots are racing wild through the city. But no one's invincible. It doesn't matter how great Nineveh was. And Nineveh was a great city. It had two walls. It had an interior wall and it had an exterior wall. The interior wall was 100 feet high. And at the top of it, it was wide enough that three chariots could race around. And this wall, it had 1,200 towers and it was full of gates. And on the outside wall, the exterior wall, well, it was even taller than the interior wall. I mean, this was an incredibly fortified city. And then outside the exterior wall was this moat, a huge, wide moat. Beyond all that, Nineveh was incredibly wealthy. She was fortified. She was strong. She was large. She seemingly had, beginning, had a beginning from the existence of time. I mean, this is how she could, far she could trace her, trace her roots back. And yet God is coming against Nineveh and saying, Nineveh, you're as good as dead. And not only will you be dead, but you're going to be so obliterated that there, there will be no descendants no one's going to come up and say, hey, I'm a Ninevite. You've never met a Ninevite. Why? Because Nineveh was completely obliterated. God even taunts Nineveh in this book. Who's going to mourn for her? Where is the lion's den? You once were so mighty. Now where is your roar? I'm going to lift up your skirt over your face. I'm going to make people look at your nakedness. I'm going to pelt you with filth. I'm going to make you a spectacle. I mean, this is how God is talking to Nineveh. 
Why? Because Nineveh stands before God completely and utterly ashamed. And it's a graphic picture, but it's meant to be graphic because this picture illustrates how all of us stand before God when we have nothing to acquit ourselves except for our sin. That this is how God sees us. As his enemies, as people deserving of his wrath. Why? Because we have neglected our responsibility. We've, we've turned away from our call at creation, who he's made us to be. And we've said, no, I'm, I've decided to do our own, my own thing. These are my rules. And Nineveh had its rules and how it wanted to live. And when you live like that, God says, there is justice. There, my wrath will be displayed. Why? Because I'm going to protect my people. And no one's invincible for that. God even gives Nineveh a quick history lesson. He says, you remember Thebes? And Thebes was this great city in Egypt. No one thought Thebes could be conquered. And yet who conquered Thebes? It was the Assyrians. The Assyrians knew all too well. I mean, this is one of their crowning achievements. They were able to take out this great Egyptian city. And they did it in 663 B.C. And God's saying, do you think you're better than Thebes? Do you think you're invincible? You know, maybe today you look and you think, hey, the U.S., man, we're invincible. Nobody can take us out. We are good. And listen, I love our country. I, I'm, I'm glad that we have patriotism and I want a strong USA. I want all that. But understand this. As Christians, our hope is not in the USA. We, we don't trust in just, hey, our country to avenge us and to protect us. No, ultimately, it's Jesus. And see, thankfully, the, we're not uh, the same as Assyria. We, we don't do the same stuff. We don't treat people the same way. But we have our sins too. And they're not hidden from God. And one day, it, God in his righteousness is going to bring justice to this nation and to every other nation of this world. Why? So that he can make all the nations of the world, he can make them one kingdom, one nation for our Lord and his Christ. That's what God's doing. That's what he's up to. You're not invincible. This country's not invincible. Nineveh wasn't invincible. Assyria wasn't invincible, even personally. You think you're set. You think you're well fortified. You're, you're good for life. You're protected. No, not before the Lord. God is powerful. He calls your future. He holds it. And just like God flooded Nineveh out, I mean, that's how he did it. The Ninevites trusted in water. And what does God cause? He, he allows the Babylonians and their friends to basically dam up the river and then let it loose and flood it all out. And the people are running like crazy. And then the armies come in and they wipe them out. I mean, they completely looted Nineveh. The destruction was so total and so complete that they didn't even know where Nineveh was until 1842 that it was finally discovered and excavated. And one of the interesting things that happened when they excavated Nineveh is this city that was so full of wealth and might, when they excavated it, there's no findings of their wealth. No, you found pictures and all this other stuff and you found things to show how they had the money, but there was no gold, there was no silver. Why? Because when the Babylonians and her friends came in, they looted them completely, just like God was talking about here. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, and that's just what happened. You understand, no one is invincible. And so that leads us to lesson number five, which is make sure your repentance is genuine. Make sure it's genuine. Make sure it lasts. Nahum ends, this brutal, beautiful book 
ends with this verse. It says, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The book ends with a question. Do you know the other book in the Bible that ends with a question? There's only one other book in all of Scripture that ends in a question. Do you know which one it is? It's the book of Jonah. We just looked at it just a couple weeks ago. Jonah ends in a question. And do you know, you remember the story of Jonah. And Jonah, he didn't want to go to Nineveh, but that's where he had to go. God sent him there. And this reluctant prophet goes and he gives a message, not one of hope, just simply, hey, 40 days and then Nineveh, you'll be destroyed. You'll be no more. You'll be toast. That's the whole message. And what happens? Well, the Ninevites, they hear the message and they repent. They call for a fast. They turn to God. And God, well, he relents. He doesn't bring this destruction that the prophet has promised. He relents. And it's much to Jonah's chagrin. He's upset about it. He's, oh, God, I knew you were going to do this. Why does this have to happen? And then God ends the book of Jonah with this question. It's a question to Jonah in order to teach him about his kindness and his mercy. He asked this, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 1,200,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God is slow to anger. He relents from disaster when people repent, not because we cause God to change his mind, but because that is just simply how God works. The Bible tells us from a broken and contrite heart, God cannot turn away. He will not turn away, not even from Nineveh. So Nineveh's broken, Nineveh's contrite. God sees it. God does not turn away. He relents from his wrath that was coming. But then a hundred years later, God moves from teaching Jonah about his kindness and his mercy to asking another question, this time to the Ninevites. And it's a question that's completely different because it's a question that points out, hey, who has not come, who has not experienced, who has not endured your unceasing evil? Jonah ends with a question attesting to God's boundless grace. Nahum ends with a question that is just this dirge of judgment. Why? How does that happen? I mean, what happened? Well, Nineveh wasn't discipled. No one ever told Nineveh, hey, this is how you relate to God. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how a relationship with God impacts everything you do. Nineveh wasn't discipled, and so they could not pass on the torch. They couldn't teach the next generation. They didn't know what to teach the next generation. So the next generation comes and says, I don't know this whole God thing you're talking about. We're doing our own thing. We're going back to our traditions, our history, and they become more ruthless and more brutal than they ever were before. So you can't live on what took place in the past. You can't live on the legacy of your parents or your grandparents or anything like that. Well, I've got this legacy of faith in my family. You can't live on that. A country can't live on that. A church can't live on that. That's why God calls all of us to make disciples, to pour into other people, to pass the baton of faith so that it won't be lost to the next generation. So that repentance becomes this daily activity, not a once thing, but this daily activity of just keeping an account short with God and walking in relationship with him. 
Yeah, we remember what God has done. We remember what he did in the past, but that's to encourage us that he's going to continue to act in the present and in the future. When our testimony simply becomes about what God did in the good old days, and oh man, back then everything was so great. Man, we miss it. Why? Because our God is living and active today. He wants, you to, he wants to use you to make disciples today. If your testimony is simply about some amazing act of faith or what you discovered all these years ago or somebody you poured into all these years ago, but it's not happening today, if there are no more uh, examples of how God is writing your story now, these new people you are pouring into, new experiences of trusting, new examples of faithfulness, new opportunities to grow, well, then you're missing it. Because in a relationship, what happens? You're with that person. And so there's new stories to tell. There's new experiences to be had. There's new lessons to be learned. There's new opportunities. There's new depth. All of this happens, and it happens as a result of spending time together. Nineveh stopped spending time with God. So she couldn't pass on a relationship to the next generation because she never even knew how the relationship worked to begin with. Jonah didn't hang around to tell Nineveh, to disciple Nineveh. No one was there. And so what happens? They reverted to their past and they become even worse than before Jonah got there. Nahum, it's a short, it's a beautiful, and yes, it is a brutal book. But it's full of lessons, lessons about God and his character and the side of God that's important to understand. Because when we understand it, then we, then we see that God's justice and his grace and his mercy and his love, they all are these different aspects of who he is and they fit together congruently and perfectly. And it's all for our good. It's all for our good. Nahum shows us that. Nahum shows us about ourselves how, hey, we might think we can keep things hidden. We might think we're invincible. We might think we're tough. We might think that we got this. But God, he's in control. He's the one who holds our future. He's, he's the one who fights our battles. He's the one. He, he's the one we're trusting in, not in ourselves, but we trust in him and in him alone. So there's, there's these lessons about life about God, about ourselves, about humanity. And it's this vivid reminder to run the race well, to not give up, but to keep on going, to keep pressing into that relationship and to pass the baton to others so that they can then impact other people. This is a beautiful book about trusting in God and in God alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this small book, Nahum, and this beautiful, vivid reminder that it is to trust in you and to trust in you alone. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.